What's in this for the American people and for small businesses, obviously, is tax relief, an opportunity to hire more people, uh, to build more of America, and to get the growth rate up. And the growth I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell talking about the tax package that appears poised to pass the Senate on Friday. There's a lot happening in Washington as we record this on Friday afternoon. Republicans are still writing the tax bill that they've agreed to pass. Former White House official Michael Flynn's plea deal, the ramifications continue to shake the city. There's a good chance that by the time you hear this, some details may have changed. So on today's episode, we tried to look at what we know about the tax package and how it will affect healthcare, as well as some of the other big stories from the week that may have been overshadowed. First, Jen Habercorn and Adam Kankren joined me to discuss their reporting from The Hill on the tax fight, the nomination of Alex Azar's HHS secretary, as well as some of the other stories that shook up healthcare this week, including a fake news story in this host's opinion. Then after the break, I sat down with Chris Jacobs, He's head of the Juniper Research Group, a prominent conservative analyst. We talked about the tax deal's impact on healthcare. Spoiler alert, he doesn't like it, as well as what Republicans have, and mostly haven't, accomplished this year when it comes to health policy. Just a reminder, if you like Pulse Check, help us keep it going. The two best ways to do that, give us a rating or review on iTunes, or tell a friend, a colleague, to listen to us too. And tell me who you'd like to hear from. I'm at ddiamond at politico.com. And now, here's our news roundup with Jen and Adam. I'm joined on this Friday afternoon by Jen Hapricorn, our senior healthcare reporter. Hey, Dan. And Adam Kankren, just a healthcare reporter. <laughs> hey, Dan, hey. I'll take it. <laughs> so Adam's a great reporter. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're senior in terms of, uh, I'm having a senior moment because I can't think of the joke I want to make. Um, as of 2.30 p.m. on Friday, the Senate tax bill looks like it's going to go through. All the concerns about health care dropped away. Conscientious objectors to the bills to repeal the ACA, Lisa Murkowski, John McCain, they're on board. Susan Collins, it appears, is, is leaning toward this bill, too. Jen, how did we get here after all of that concern about this tax bill really affecting the ACA and other health care implications? Yeah, it's it's quite ironic that Republicans spent nine months trying to do this and weren't able to do it, and now they're going to repeal the mandate. And I think there's a couple factors. One, um, the mandate is the most unpopular piece of the law. Two, Republicans, every Republican, including Susan Collins, has a um, you know kind of fil- a philosophical opposition to requiring people to buy insurance, um, and that's deeply ingrained. There's so much animosity. Over that provision, I think some of that was the 2012 Supreme Court fight. Um, and finally, the mandate isn't as effective as it was supposed to be. The fine isn't high enough, so it's not drawing people into the market in the way it was intended by Democrats. And so I think all of those, in combination with the fact that it raises a heck of a ton of money for tax reform, made it pretty easy. I mean, it was just a couple weeks ago that Orrin Hatch, the Senate Finance Chairman, Kevin Brady, the uh, Ways and Means Committee Chairman, were pretty opposed to adding Obamacare repeal to this, I mean, a mandate repeal to this. And, you know, very quickly it kind of got added and it became just kind of a footnote for Republicans. You've both done reporting here. Is there concern among these Republicans, Murkowski, McCain, Collins, who were buoyed by independents and liberals, 
and championed as heroes, that now they will lose all of that goodwill and be punished for it in some mechanism down the road. Well, I, I think overall it's a reminder that, you know, even some of these uh, Republicans like Susan Collins, who were kind of the mainstays against a lot of the repeal efforts, it, it's a reminder that it doesn't mean it's because they're in love with Obamacare. It just means because they weren't happy with the with the replacement ideas. There are still a lot of objections to the way Obamacare was put in place, to its provisions, and specifically to the individual mandate. So, yeah, maybe it, it damages their standing in the minds of, you know, Democrats and, and liberals. Um, on the other hand, Agreeing to repeal the mandate does two things for them and for their own Republican base. Number one, it gets you potentially a legislative win in, in this tax package, um, which is sorely needed for this administration for you know Republican Congress. And the second thing is it allows you to go back to you know uh, Republicans on health care and say, look, may not have been something that you wanted. We, you might not have gotten everything, but you got this. We got the one provision that everybody hated. Uh, out of Obamacare. And, and if that's not the whole game, then at least it's a start. Uh, so those are two victories that you can kind of point to. And I think I would add that particularly for Collins and Murkowski, they talked a lot about how the repeal bill over the summer would have hurt access. And they're both arguing now that this isn't going to hurt access, which of course, insurers and ACA supporters would argue otherwise. But Murkowski had a very long um, op-ed in one of her Alaska papers a couple weeks ago, basically laying out, you know, the mandate just means that you don't have to buy insurance. You're still going to have insurance options. And I think, you know, next uh, the um, insurance markets in 2019 might not reflect that reality, but at least that's what they're going to say. There are a range of predictions as to how many fewer people end up being covered as a result of no mandate. Standard and Poor's and other private sector groups have said it might be two or three million. CBO had said 13 million. So, significant variation on how big a deal this is. I think the one other point, too, is even setting aside if Democrats and independents don't feel as proud of Murkowski and McCain as they might have done, these are Republican senators who were brought to office by Republican voters who may now have a renewed sense of enthusiasm mm -hmm. for, for their leadership. One senator who has come out pr uh, very dramatically at times against Republican efforts, the health care bill, than the tax bill before flipping back, Ron Johnson. And I realize, Jen, his concerns about the tax package weren't healthcare related, but you've profiled him. Why does he keep coming out so strongly, if only to fold rather quickly? Yeah, so this does mark the second time he's kind of come out and said, I'm, I'm going to oppose this. And then a couple days later, is okay with it. And um, it's, it's sort of unusual in the Senate because a lot of times you can use that as leverage when you come out and say, you know, I'm going to vote no. Then, you ha then suddenly leadership is calling you saying, what can we do for you? But there is some frustration with other Republican senators that I've spoken to who feel like his tactics aren't particularly helpful. Um, and there's a lot of lingering hostility between Ron Johnson and establishment Republicans in Washington. Uh, it was in his last election that everyone thought he was going to lose. So Republicans took all their money out of Wisconsin. And he kind of had to, uh, he put out these kind of grassroots ads that he supposedly paid for, um, you know, with, with his own campaign. And they were very, um, you know, charming and they buoyed him in the polls. And, and obviously he won. And Republicans did put money back into Wisconsin at the end of that election cycle. But um, the fact that he was abandoned by the party, I think, is really sticking with him. Mm. And he also is kind of a, um, likes to, you know, uh, 
be his own man and, and, and not just be one of the lemmings that's going along with what everyone else is doing. Um, that said, I don't know that it's going to be a long-term effective strategy in Washington. So he's not yoked to party leadership, but nor should people who see his opposition as some big symbolic move put a lot of faith in it. Going back to the tax package and its impact, Adam, you've done some reporting on the PAYGO effects. And unless Congress takes action quickly, the sequester cuts will kick in and that will have dramatic impact on Medicare, on other health and social programs. How worried should those programs be? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, if you talk to Republicans, they say, look, this is not an issue. Um, you know, the this kind of mandated spending cut uh, provision has been waived in the past. Uh, and this is something that they can just do again. Uh, and the spending cut would be because the bill incurs $1.5 trillion in yes. spending. Yes, there's a requirement that any legislation that's passed that adds, it's projected to add to the deficit has to be offset by spending cuts to, you know, these non-exempt federal programs. And so that includes, uh, I mean, a whole number of things. Uh, it'd be about a $25 billion cut to Medicare. Uh, it would affect student loans, uh, a whole number of agricultural programs and, and, and subsidies, uh, the Crime Victims Fund. And effectively, you know, what budget experts say is that this kind of rule was never envisioned to enact spending cuts this large, uh, roughly $150 billion a year. Uh, and that, you know, it would mean zeroing out a lot of programs uh, and that potentially there aren't even enough programs to kind of come up with that $150 billion. So Republicans say, look, this is not an issue. Uh, we will come to a deal um, in order to kind of waive this. The problem is that you need 60 votes to be able to do that. And that kind of puts the ball in Democrats' court to say, well, either, you know, we can just go along with this because at the end of the day, we don't want to see these spending cuts, you know, even at risk of happening. Uh, or they can say there are only a few days left until the end of the year. Now we have some leverage. Let's see what we can do. Let's let's see what we can negotiate uh, before we agree to, to, to kind of avoid these cuts. So uh, there's a lot of stuff that still needs to be done at the end of the year. This just adds one more thing uh, on at the end. And these cuts are significant enough. Your story with Sarah Ferris on Thursday night for Politico talked about the elimination of the Prevention and Public Health Fund. Absolutely, That's which has been something that Republicans have been trying to do for a long time. Uh, this, in Republicans' eyes, in a lot of Republicans' eyes, is not going to be the way to do it. You know, there are a lot of conservatives who would love to rein in spending, uh, love to kind of, you know, keep a very, very tight uh, leash on, on the deficit. But... This doing it in this kind of you know broad way would also hit programs uh, run by U.S. Customs and Border Protection, uh, the immigration reforms, things that uh, agriculture reforms, things that Republicans yeah. are, are normally in favor of and wouldn't want to see eliminated. While the focus has been on tax reform and also something about Russia hit the news <laughs> on Friday, there was our first glimpse of the potential next Secretary of HHS, Alex Azar a hearing that you covered, Adam, that, that yes. we all kind of kept an eye on. How did that hearing go in front of the Senate Help Committee? Was it a boon for defenders of Azar? Were there any real wounds opened by Democrats in the same way that Tom Price was really beat up in his Senate sure. hearings and that scandal followed him through his time in office? Sure. So it was uh, it was about, uh, I think, as well as Alex Azar, the, the HHS nominee, uh, thought, it might, thought it might be able to go. Um, there were always going to be questions about his background uh, as a pharmaceutical executive. So he spent a decade at Eli Lilly. Uh, he was the president of its U.S. operations, during which the price of insulin 
uh, tripled at Eli Lilly. And so there were always going to be a lot of tough questions about that. Elizabeth Warren, in particular, uh, really went after him during the hearing. Uh, but at the end of the day, he did what he needed to do in, in talking with people uh, in Azar's camp who had been prepping him. They said, look, we're happy. This was going to be, you know, the toughest of the two hearings uh, that he has to face. And he made it through without any major missteps. Would they have told you if they weren't happy? Well, I think, you know, they did admit that, look, you know, Elizabeth Warren may have gotten the better of the exchange. She really went after him for being at Eli Lilly at a time when the company was under investigation uh, for illegal, for fraudulently marketing an antipsychotic drug. He came in. He came in right after. He came yeah. in right after, and and Elizabeth Warren really grilled him on who should have you know paid the, the fine for that, who should have faced consequences. It was all about accountability. Executives yeah. should have been held accountable. Uh, so you know they said, look, you know Elizabeth Warren may have gotten the better of the exchange on that. But at the end of the day, she was always going to be the toughest one to convince. And there's no expectation that he's going to get, you know, many or any Democratic votes. All he had to do was really go there, uh, you know, lay out his plans for HHS, uh, for bringing down drug prices, for uh, for handling, you know, Obamacare and its implementation and potentially another shot at repeal. And, and he, he largely did that. Two more observations from that hearing. First, Lamar Alexander and Republicans took his history in the pharma industry and said, this is a positive. This is a guy who is sure. really well positioned to handle these issues because he knows them. Second, he's our volunteered when, when asked about payment reforms and accountable care organizations. He said that was going to be one of his top three priorities at HHS, which appears to be a break from Tom Price, who is more critical of some of the payment reforms. Or, or do, you, do you not agree with that, Adam? No, I, I agree. I, I think it remains to be seen how he handles that. So there's a lot of leeway. Uh, but look, Tom Price had a long track record. He came in with an ideology. Uh, he, he, had, he believed you know, certain specific things. One, that small physician groups uh, face too much regulation. Um, and that the burden needed to, needed to be, you know, reduced on them and that there needed to be a specific focus. Uh, and in part, a lot of that was on this kind of shift to more, you know, of a value-based system of healthcare. Uh, Alex Azar has a long history in healthcare at HHS, in the pharmaceutical industry, but everybody I talk to says that he is much more of a, a pragmatic type of manager, somebody who's not really going to bring his own ideology into the office, and, and more is going to be kind of reflecting the Trump administration's broader priorities. I think both of these hearings in health and finance to come is really just going to be about avoiding mistakes. I mean, as of right now, I think, um, you know, there's 52 Senate Republicans, 48 Democrats, it's probably going to be, you know, somewhere one or two above or below that, maybe he'll get the vote of um, Joe Donnelly, the Democrat from Indiana. But maybe, you know, this, this is really just let's avoid some mistakes. Absolutely. Let's maybe try to overcome the drug pricing issue and hopefully get through the Senate. I think, I think that's the goal right now. One issue that didn't come up in his hearing, and, and maybe it should or shouldn't have, funding for the Children's Health Insurance Program. It's obviously a huge issue in healthcare. Not a lot that the HHS secretary can do about it at the moment. Congress needs to deal with it. But Jen, a scoop that you had that had the misfortune of coming out on the busiest news day of the year. <laughs> what is the state of funding for the Children's Health Insurance Program? We're two months now past the date of funding expiration. Yeah, it's not looking good for CHIP funding right now. And I was of, of the belief that after the deadline passed, that the funding was going to come through pretty quickly. And now it looks like it's not going to be till the end of December. A lot of that is 
shut down politics and the debate in Congress right now over CRs. But a lot of folks had thought that uh, the government runs out of funding December 8th and CHIP would get wrapped up into the bill that would pass, presumably on December 8th at 1130 at night. And that was going to be enough time that states were going to get the funding and there would be no lapses. But now um, they're not going to be able to get a full omnibus or spending bill by the 8th. So they're talking about a CR for the 9th, maybe even a two-week CR that'll push all the controversial measures to December 22nd, which is really wonderful for everyone in Washington who wants to get out of town for the holidays. Um, and it's it's unclear whether those are going to be possible. But all that means for CHIP is that it's going to have to ride on whatever bill actually does come together at some point. And I don't see a two-week CR getting CHIP attached to it. That just I don't see House Republicans going along with that or at least a, a, a funding bill that um, CHIP advocates would want. One last question about HHS and, and the state of things. We saw on Friday the departure of the chief medical officer for Medicaid, Andre Ostrovsky, Andre Ostrovsky who yes. has been a notable figure because he was willing to speak out against Republicans' plans, even as he worked for the administration. A few days ago, Adam, you had a great scoop about the Office of Health Reform being shuttered again. Where, where does HHS stand at the end of this year? Is it in turmoil? Is it stabilizing? I mean, I've done my own reporting here, but I'm curious what the two of you have seen and thought. From what I've heard, it's it's one of those agencies that uh, is at this point is kind of in, in flux, in, in kind of a um, wait-and-see mode. Um, for the seven months that Tom Price was atop it, there was a lot of dysfunction. Um, not only were there internal rivalries, there was a lot of confusion about what Tom Price and a lot of the other political appointees actually wanted to do. There was very little guidance. Um, and uh, also a lot, of, a lot of career staffers from the Obama administration who were now getting orders to undo a lot of the work that they spent eight years on. Uh, so just a lot of unhappiness uh, in, in the agency. And that's going to be perhaps the chief challenge for Alex Azar, if he is indeed confirmed, to really come in and change the, the entire you know, atmosphere there to really improve the morale. Uh, and that's what, you know, Alex Azar himself, that's what uh, his team, that's what Republicans have been kind of touting is, look, this is a guy who spent six years in HHS managing uh, a broad swaths of the agency. He knows how to come in, how to be the kind of strong leader that HHS needs at this point. And so up until, up until then, it's going to be a lot of kind of, you know, waiting and watching and, and, and seeing what happens. I think also a lot of this year was spent with so much uncertainty around the future of the ACA that it really affected what they could do. Um, because remember, on January 20th, an executive order came down telling HHS to do all they can to undermine the ACA. And we didn't see a, a ton out of that actual executive order, in part because HHS was waiting to see what Congress could do. Now, if they have a new HHS secretary at the beginning of the year um, and they can move forward with some strategic direction, I think there's some hope in HHS that that will help. Of course, politically, now that Republicans are on the verge of repealing the mandate, it only re is going to reignite the passion they have for repealing the health care law coming back to that effort in Graham-Cassidy next year. So there could be even more uncertainty for HHS. And something more for us to, to chase in the new year. Last topic I want to discuss on this podcast, and, and it's going to be a little bit of a soapbox, but I'm going to invoke my right 
as podcast <laughs> host to occasionally jump on a soapbox. And that's about fake news or just accuracy of news and, and reporting, a topic that I think all of us think about in our daily jobs. And this week was... Especially lately. Well, this week was was a big one. There was the Project Veritas brouhaha at the Washington Post where the advocacy organization tried to expose the Post, but in, in so doing, only expose that the Post is doing great journalism and not running fake stories about Roy Moore or other things. There is the White House holiday party for journalists as we as we speak. I'm guessing neither of you are planning to go because you're here instead, or maybe that was personal preference. I, I actually canceled in order to do Pulse Check today. I applaud That's your priorities. Oh. <laughs> but that that was preceded this week by President Trump talking about CNN being fake news and offering an award for fake news. So with all of that as the backdrop, there was a story this week that really wasn't much of a story, but it became one. And that was Kellyanne Conway being named as opioid czar, or at least that was the report that numerous organizations carried on Wednesday after a speech that Jeff Sessions made. A partial list of organizations, BuzzFeed, Axios, The Hill, Quartz, New York Magazine, Grist, Philadelphia Inquirer, Infowars. They all carried this story about Kellyanne Conway now assuming this office with, with new powers. That was not true. Jeff Sessions mentioned in part of a bigger opioid speech that Kellyanne Conway would be handling the White House coordination and messaging around opioids, which she has been doing all year, as Politico and others reported way back in February. So when this news came out, our colleague Brianna Ely, Sarah Carlin-Smith, me, pointed out very quickly, this is not true. There is no new office that Kellyanne Conway is leading. She's been doing the same thing all year. But that did not stop all these organizations from running stories. Some of them walked it back. Axios walked it back the next morning. But it struck me that at a moment when so many people are focused on the accuracy of the news media, especially the White House, this was legitimately a fake news story. If if one was to write about Kellyanne Conway in this office, there was a smart story to be written. How has Kellyanne Conway done for 10 months leading this effort from the White House? Or is Kellyanne Conway qualified to be running this? But for the White House to come out and say very quickly, this is not true, for reporters to point out this is not true, and for so many media organizations, and I emailed some of these people and they kept their tweets up and their stories up, to just leave it there, it's fake news. It, it is giving this administration accurate evidence of the media not doing its job. And I think it gets to deeper ways that news gets aggregated and quickly reported. But it was a very aggravating moment for me as someone who writes about this every day in Pulse, what's happening in healthcare news. In this case, it was something that really wasn't happening the way that lots of people reported it. Well, I get frustrated as um, someone who writes about the Affordable Care Act almost every day that the polls that show a lot of people don't even know if the law exists anymore. Um, so whether that's poor reporting on the journalism side or people who just are not paying attention to anything, um, that's my chief frustration, not to, not to get on your soapbox. No, no, but. you can have a soapbox of your own. I mean, I think, I think some of it is there's only so much capacity for the average American to know about these things. And that's why it's incumbent on the reporters. Right, to, to know what's going on. Right, right. Yeah, yeah and I mean, you know, this is, a, this is in particular an administration and I think a broader news cycle that is moving, I mean, faster than I feel like I ever remember. Mm. Uh, and it's, 
I think part of the problem is that it's it's easy to kind of get caught up in the, you know, we have to be on top of absolutely everything that's happening when it happens. Uh, and, you know, the risk there is that it breeds sloppiness. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, if anything, I feel like this is like a good reminder to say, look, just because uh, something has come out that you see on, on Twitter or over your email or a rumor has circulated doesn't mean that you know, you don't still have to go through the entire mechanics of reporting something out, of of making sure that you've you've checked with all of the channels you need to be. Or at least with. doing a Google search. At least doing a Google search. It's the basic, <laughs> the basic requirement. Jen mentioned the lack of awareness about whether the law even exists anymore. Do you have a do you have a bugaboo issue of your own? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think if there is any issue that I have, it's it's reading past the headline. Um, you know, I, I know again things are moving you know crazy fast. Uh, it, my my thing is that sometimes people read the tweet and not always the entire story, uh, and a lot of times you know the tweet and the story are are you know if not significantly different, then you know the the tweet misses a lot of the nuance that's included in the story. So. Read the story. That's that's my only uh, that's my only soapbox issue. <laughs> a simple plea. A simple plea to just read the story. I mean, it is holiday time. If you can do us any gift as reporters, read the full story before sending the tweet. And send us scoops. <laughs> that too. We are Politico. Jen Habercorn, Adam Cancran, thanks for joining. Thanks, thanks Dan. Dan. As of Friday, Republicans appeared poised to pass their major tax legislation. And while there's been a lot of liberal concern about the bill... Some conservatives are worried, too. And I talked to one of them, Chris Jacobs, founder and CEO of Juniper Research Group, a former Heritage Foundation analyst, a Hill staffer, about what the bill would do for health care, as well as what it's been like to be a conservative analyst watching this Republican Congress make changes in health care. As we sit here on Friday afternoon, it appears Senate Republicans have a deal to move their tax package. Now, three weeks ago, you wrote a piece. Republicans would be crazy to repeal Obamacare's individual mandate inside tax reform. It looks like that's exactly what they're going to do. Do you still think Republicans are crazy to do it? I I think I understand the logic of it from a tax policy perspective. The mandate is a very regressive tax. It hits low-income individuals, and it generates a significant amount of revenue to pay for for the the tax reform bill. So I understand that as a matter of tax policy. I think it's very questionable as a matter of health care policy. If you end up, it will end up raising premiums. We don't, people disagree by how much, but it will have some impact in the marketplace. And then when you couple it potentially with the Alexander Murray bill and CSRs and reinsurance, and you create by by adding those provisions onto it, you create the predicate that the exchanges are too big to fail and that the federal government is going to be on the hook for all of these costs if premiums continue to rise. The combination of those strikes me as 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 very questionable healthcare policy. Um, and then when you, you, you add other elements in there in terms of federal funding of abortion coverage uh, in the Alexander Murray bill because the Hyde Amendment restrictions aren't on there. And my other broader concern, I think, about a lot of what has gone on in the past few months and certainly the past year on health policy is the Republicans seem to be going from tactic to tactic rather than coming up with an overarching strategy. Um, For instance, the one element of this is if you take all that money 
from repealing the individual mandate and dedicate it towards the tax reform bill, okay, that's great, then that's money that you can't spend on your health care bill. Let's let's take this in, sure. in pieces. So just focusing first on tax reform in this package that's moving. As a conservative, do you think that this is good policy in in any way for the healthcare space, having pointed out some of your concerns with it? I support the concept of tax reform and, and, and lowering corporate tax rates to grow the economy. So, yeah. In, on the tax side, you're good on, with it. On the tax side, it, 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 it makes sense, broadly speaking. I'm not a tax person, so I can't delve into the weeds of, of specific provisions, and it's a moving target even as we're, we're, we're speaking. But broadly speaking, yes. It's the healthcare side that – and it's it's – potentially jeopardizing the healthcare side to pass the tax side, that's that's the concerning part of that. And you mentioned the cost-sharing reductions, yep. the deal that Senator Alexander, Senator Murray, the bipartisan deal to shore up the ACA individual market. Susan Collins and others have said that that is an essential component to winning over her vote. But there are real questions that you, Chris, have flagged about whether those cost-sharing reductions are even going to exist Sure, because of the question of the statutory pago sequester. And so Senator McConnell has said, well, we're, we're going to pa- pass Alexander Murray on the continuing resolution or on an appropriations bill. We're going to pass a statutory pago waiver on the appropriations bill. Those all require 60 votes. And so at what point do Democrats decide to just cave and, and agree to waive PAYGO. It has been waived a lot in the past. Do they decide to cave or not? And when? And if you're making things contingent on certain other things, the sequencing of it may not all add up. And it's another question of, has anybody really considered kind of the longer term ramifications of 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 how the bill is being constructed and the specific policy elements of it. You were a Senate Republican staffer, a House Republican staffer. Yep. Why do you think that those ramifications aren't being fully considered by this Congress? Um, I've, I've thought a lot about that for, for the the past year. Some of it, frankly, is a constraint of votes. And we've seen a lot we saw it in July and in September when health care came to the Senate floor. Well, what's your goal? To pass with 50 votes. Okay, You're seeing that now. What's the goal? Well, we need to get something that gets 50 votes. And so you end up with kind of these, I don't know, balkanized, awkward, kludgy solutions, for lack of a better term, to, to, to get to 50 votes. I think the... The other concern is, and I've been there in the leadership room, I don't know that it's the short-term impetus and the short-term pressures that are always there. You see it in the corporate world to make your quarterly numbers and meet the street estimate versus long-term growth and that sort of thing. A lot of times when you're the leadership staffer, you're only worried about passing the tax bill. Okay, and we've spent the past week focused on passing the tax bill. And then, oh, by the way, the continuing resolution expires 
a week from from you know next Friday, uh, December eighth. What are we going to do about that? And so you're in these kind of constant fire drills, and and so you have to be careful to see the forest for the trees. And it doesn't sound like there's much of a mechanism built in to have lawmakers do that right now if they're constantly running from policy issue to policy issue to say nothing of the big issues that shake the administration, like today the indictment and or pleading guilty of Michael Flynn. Sure. And I, and I think there is a concern there because you're so – Republicans want to deliver and we need a win and we need a win. And so, OK, if you end up getting a short-term win, are you cre- setting yourself up for a longer-term loss by, by – by the the tactics you're using to get this to get this win, and that's where I think the implications of what's going on in the tax bill vis-a-vis healthcare could have longer-term ramifications next year that people may be conscious of but aren't certainly driving the discussion. Well, let's let's talk about what those ramifications sure. could be and what you think should be more focused on by conservatives and and liberals too. Um, I, I think when you repeal the mandate, but you don't repeal the regulations, that's going that's inherently going to raise premiums. You're talking about the regulations and the titles of the ACA Correct. that govern the individual market. Correct. That allow the guarantee for people with pre-existing conditions, for instance, Correct. to get covered. Correct. And um, and and so that's that's going to raise premiums. It's a question of of how much. Um, and the concern is, is it we just pass the tax bill with the repeal of the mandate and then okay, say, OK, check, we handled Obamacare, quote, repeal, and we move on to something else. And then you've created an insurance market that's worse off than it was when you, when you started because it's either either premiums go up or now it's more dependent upon regularized cash infusions from the federal government whether or not you think those are bailouts or, or, or whatever, um, that you, you've created a, a worse insurance market and you don't come back to fix it. If you do come back to fix it next year, then that money that you've taken from tax reform, that's not there to pay for health care. Now, as a conservative who believes in – who's focused more on, on the repeal elements of it than, than a replace – Say okay, if you believe in repeal, then you should go to the status quo ante in terms of a of a baseline and all all that spending. But certainly, moderates like Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski and John McCain and others and governors aren't going to be happy if Graham Cassidy, I don't know, are we on version three now? Um, comes out. Three months from now, and as a result of the tax reform, their block grants are suddenly 20 percent or X percent smaller than they were back in September when we were debating the, 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 the bill. So to put this really bluntly, Republicans have led Congress this year. They've had the White House for 10 months. If all they get is rolling back the individual mandate after years of promising to repeal and replace the ACA, that's far from enough. In your mind, in my mind, and I've I've said this in various forms. I don't know if I've actually published a piece to this effect. It's the regulation, stupid. Um, certainly, Barack Obama and Democrats didn't want to create the mandate. It's unpopular. People don't like it. Barack Obama ran against it. I think very opportunistically in the 2008 primaries, and 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 demagogued Hillary Clinton on that. Um, 
But there was at least a theory is the regulations will raise premiums. Therefore, you need the mandate. Therefore, you need the subsidies. Therefore, you need the tax increases to pay for the subsidies. Um, and if you just take out the mandate and say, well, we'll take out the unpopular parts of Obamacare, but we'll keep the popular parts, I don't know that that's going to work very well, quite, quite candidly. We've talked a lot about what you don't like about the ACA. Just for balance, is there anything that you do like about what the law did and what it has accomplished? I, I think I support the means testing provisions, the Medicare means testing provisions that were in there. I know there are various, you know, a rather small part of, of the law. I think means testing specifically that if, if you have the means. Sure, for what make wealthier beneficiaries pay a greater share of their Medicare premiums. Um, it expanded means testing that, that Republicans had put in previously. Um, certainly support for, for follow-on biologics uh, and promoting innovation in a way that hopefully can lower costs over time. That certainly was a good pr- provision in there. Also the wellness incentives, and that was a very bipartisan part of the Finance Committee markup. Uh, I believe that was Ensign's amendment. Um, back in 2009 to increase incentives for wellness and everybody talked about the Safeway model and there was a a good degree of of bipartisan uh, support on that. So yeah, there are certainly provisions in there that whether you repeal the whole thing and you reenact those provisions that are are worth doing. But I think upending the – a lot of the healthcare system to to try to solve the problem of – pre-existing conditions, which is a real problem and uh, deserves significant solution. Um, But upending the system for $300 million to solve the pre-existing condition problem for a few million didn't seem to me to be be worth it. There's there's a series of questions I've always wanted answers on, and and I, I think you're as good a person to ask as any, and that's about the balance of policy analysts. There are so many progressive Yep. Policy analysts, when it comes to healthcare, very few conservative mm-hmm. policy analysts. You're one of them. Why do you think that is? I think it's because I'm guessing if you looked at, and I've always thought I, that I faced the kind of predicament that a Democrat would if they were, for instance, an, an armed services or a defense lobbyist. I think it's particular to the sector. It's probably because. A lot of Democratic staffers are lifers. They believe in it. They believe um, in universal coverage and, and, and all the principles. And so, what they, do you believe in? What is your core healthcare operandi? I think we need to focus on 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 lowering costs, and I think making sure that there is a safety net for for individuals. But I think that. Um, our, our healthcare programs are, are fundamentally unsustainable. And I think that was one of the concerns with, with PACA and with the law is you were just adding to an, an unsustainable system and it will bury future generations in debt. Um, but I think on the left – because they are so passionately committed to it, you will see staffers who are spend 20, 30, 40 years on Capitol Hill and work for eighty, a hundred thousand dollars, which sounds like a lot, but 
if you're listening outside of Washington. But if you have to pay Washington, D.C. mortgage and rental prices, it's not as much. Um, Whereas Republicans, a lot of Republican staffers end up falling into health care as an issue set. And then Republicans being capitalists, a lot of them decide that after a few years or a dozen years on Capitol Hill, they want to go down to K Street and make two, three, four hundred thousand dollars. And you know, on the one hand, m- more power to them, but then it means that there are fewer people like me around um, who don't do it primarily for um, the love of the policy and the, and the commitment to the to the principles. Do you think that that has translated to when there are big legislative fights like the healthcare fight this year, like the tax fight now? a lack of policy depth on the Republican side when they're moving quickly to come up with these bills. Sure. And I think there was a lot of that with, with the members and with the staff. Um, and I know that from I mean, when I was working in um, on Capitol Hill, a lot of my job was to staff the staffers. Uh, when I worked for, for Mike Pence at, at the House conference in 2009, um, there were staffers, you're responsible for messaging and informing them about policy. And you have staffers who are, particularly in the House, 23, 24, 25 years old. If if their boss isn't on a committee of jurisdiction, it might be a third or fourth issue, priority issue area for them. They're making thirty dollars to $40,000 a year. They're bogged down with hundreds of letters from constituents that they have to respond to. And oh, by the way, this you know thousand-page health care bill lands on their doorstep, and their boss needs to know about it, and they need to know about it. And so it really is, it does require crash courses to get the members and the staff up to speed. Um, and then because there is such turnover on Capitol Hill amongst the staff and even amongst the members, it's a constant education effort because most of the committee staffers, most of the leadership staffers who are in their current positions now were not there in 2009, 2010 when the law was being drafted, or if they were, they were in very junior positions. So because of that churn, it's, it's, it's difficult because you sometimes lack the institutional knowledge uh, which is not to say these these folks are, are bad or, or uninformed, but there are just so many things you can only get from lived experience. Is that fixable with anything other than time and just waiting for people to go through these battles? Is there some different way to structure the incentives to build up a Republican health care bench? It's it's time and energy. I I've certainly done that. I've I've tried to do that. I've I've taught classes on health care at. American University was my, my alma mater, and I've tried to to kind of mentor um, staffers as as they come along. Um, I'm looking to do to do more of that uh, to build up a, a deeper bench. One of the things, ironically enough, I did in 2009, and I got this this suggestion from of all people, Tom Daschle, because I the read Democrat Senate Majority Leader formerly, right? And I read Tom Daschle's book. Uh, I think it was critical. From t- in 2008 than he and Gene Lambrou, and he, he pointed out that in 1993, he did a series of educational healthcare university or something like that for, for the members. And I said, okay, we need to do that for, we did some for the members and then we did some for the staff to get them up to speed uh, and brought in 
um, some of the folks who were on Capitol Hill back in the 90s and say, how do you, how do you run, uh, respond to these debates? What, what is the legislative environment going to, going to look like? And try to share some of that institutional knowledge. And there is that knowledge there. It's, it requires a little bit of effort and you try to facilitate that to, to dig it out and, and, and bring it forward for people. I would be remiss if I had you on this podcast, quizzed you for 20 minutes, and did not ask even a single question about your quiz show expertise. You were on Jeopardy. Yes, sir. You were on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Yes. Is, is there another one coming? I, I don't even know what the quiz shows are right now of the moment. <laughs> There's like the online HQ app that everyone seems to love. but um, it, it's, it's a fun experience to, to be able to go on the shows and show off some of your knowledge and then win some money as a result. Uh, it's a fun experience. I doubt I'll be on any game shows in the f- in the immediate future. Uh, unfortunately, there aren't too many game shows, at least not quiz shows, on TV or cable right now other than the two you mentioned. Washington does feel like a crazy game show most of the time. Unpredictable. Who knows who's going to win? Let's leave it there. Chris Jacobs, head of the Juniper Group, contributor to Federalist, someone I link to often in Politico Pulse. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Chris Jacobs for joining me for an interview. And thanks to Bridget Mulcahy, Mikaelo Rodriguez, and Matt Sobosinski for doing the producing work. You can find Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps. You can find me at ddiamond at politico.com. You can find a new episode of Pulse Check next week. <laughs>